0: Welcome back to the facts about PACs. I'm Michaela Isler, Packs executive director, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Adam Belmar.
1: And this is episode 67 of the number one PAC podcast in America.
0: Can you feel the momentum, Mr. Belmar?
1: Oh yes, the old podcast engine is humming in 2022. Lots of great reaction to last week's episode with Megan Joyce.
0: I know. We are so lucky to have great guests like Megan and great listeners from across our community, Adam.
1: So the bar is high. It should be. And guess what? We're going to clear that bar like it was nothing with today's interview. It is time once again to take a hard look at the politics, the races, the candidates, the redistricting maps, the court battles and all the data.
0: It's a mission that requires the very best, and we got them. So coming up, our interview with Dave Wasserman, U.S. House Editor of the nonpartisan Cook Political Report.
1: Sweet. The Facts About PACs podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NABPAC activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community. Today's episode is brought to you by Chainbridge Bank. Are you looking for a financial partner who actually understands PACs? End the frustration by crossing the bridge to better banking with Chainbridge Bank, a group who specializes in the financial needs of the corporate and association PAC space. Chainbridge Bank. They know PACs.
0: Thanks, Adam. And thanks to our good friends at Chainbridge Bank for your ongoing support of this podcast and NapPAC. Well, NAPAC members are very familiar with the Cook Political Report. In fact, many of you are subscribers, and if you're not, you should be. But today we are lucky to have one of the best political reporters in the nation with us, Dave Wasserman, US House Editor of the nonpartisan Cook Political Report. Welcome to the podcast, Dave.
2: Hey, thanks, Michaela, and thanks, Adam.
0: Dave, so you are a self-described nerd. I hope you don't mind me lifting that from your Twitter uh, for maps and data. And the House of Representatives is, is really your turf. So let's start broadly. What do political professionals need to know about redistricting and the impact of timing on this year's congressional primaries across the country?
2: Yeah, a lot of people hear redistricting and reapportionment and they roll their eyes because it's just this insider process the province of, of map nerds, and it's very esoteric, and it takes a lot of attention to detail to follow. But really, it's existential to election outcomes in an era of really high geographic polarization of the vote, and really high straight ticket voting. In other words, it used to be that the strike zone for competitive races was districts that we're within the 60 to 40 range either way. Now that's really tightened. We see much less elasticity of the vote so that races where one party has even a small advantage in the district, it tends to go that party's way. So how district lines are drawn, even down to the difference of a mile can predetermine election outcomes.
0: You've said that district lines really matter way more than money, and our audience are a bunch of fundraisers, and they, for a living, raise money. So let's dig into that a little bit. I think there's some strategic messaging that can go on here for them.
2: Look, I'll give you a quick example. In Illinois, Democrats got to redraw the congressional map this time around, and they usually do. They drew a very aggressive gerrymander that tries to give them 14 of the state's 17 districts. But they threw it together at the last minute. And there are some districts that if they had kind of fine-tuned the district lines around the edges, could have squeezed three or four points more of Democratic performance out of them. An example is Illinois 17. Uh, Some of you may recall Sherry Bustos was the chair of the DCCC last cycle. She's retiring from that district. Republicans badly want to pick that district up. And Democrats drew it to be a Biden plus seven seat. Had they included a few more precincts here or there around the edges, they could have made it Biden 11 or 12. Now, you can spend 3 or $4 million on a congressional race and not move the needle in the race three or four points. That's how firm today's electorate is. And so by, by sacrificing those points, by, by essentially stranding Democratic votes around the edges of a district... Democrats probably cost themselves $5 million worth of political impact.
1: One of the things that's so fascinating about your insights are all of the implications. I want to just go back to that first question, though. Do you see that the challenges and the development of these maps, Dave, are going to have a manifest impact on when these primaries actually happen?
2: Yeah, I fully expect that several primaries will get pushed back. We've already seen that happen in North Carolina. And there's debate in North Carolina over whether primary can go on in May or whether it needs to be pushed back to June or even later. And Texas will stand alone as the earliest primary on March 1st, but we don't have another primary in the country until May. And Illinois, which typically goes in March, will will go in June. So Yes, this has been a time crunch for several reasons. The first is that the census data was delayed. The second is that there's a record level of litigation this cycle. We uh, you know, there are three certainties in life, death, taxes and litigation over redistricting. But that's especially true this time as Democrats have embarked on eight-figure campaign perhaps even a nine-figure campaign when all is said and done, to fight Republican-drawn maps. And of course, Republicans will sue in places where Democrats have drawn the lines. But Democrats' prospects of overturning maps in North Carolina, Ohio, and Alabama are a lot stronger.
0: So let's focus on New York State for just a minute, if you don't mind, Dave. The redistricting efforts there are quite aggressive. How brutal will the new map for uh, New York Republicans be?
2: yeah so democrats in new york possess the biggest redistricting weapon in the country and currently there are 19 democrats and eight republicans in new york but keep in mind that two of those democrats are pretty important figures sean patrick maloney the DCCC chair and hakeem jeffries who's assumed to be democrats leader in waiting after the, their trio of octogenarians decides to leave the house so what did they decide to do well You know, they put pressure on Albany to purge Republicans from the delegation to offset what Republicans are doing elsewhere. And the new map that Democrats have put out would cut the Republican delegation in half from eight to four and expand the number of Democrats by three. One fascinating stat from the census, by the way, is that had New York counted only an additional 26 residents, it would have beaten out Minnesota for the final seat in the House. So it's really remarkable what a difference COVID made in the run-up to the census date of April 1st. Now, that said, Democrats are likely to pick up a seat on Long Island, one on Staten Island, which has been attached to Park Slope. Talk about a culture clash. And then also in Syracuse, where John Katko is retiring, that seat has essentially doubled the Biden margin from Biden plus nine to Biden plus 18. You know, uh, one of the curious aspects of the new New York map, and a lot of people would point to the shapes, but I'd I point out that Sean Patrick Maloney's district is actually the most vulnerable Democratic seat in the state. Now, some people are saying, well, he's a team player. Other Democratic incumbents insisted on Biden plus 25 districts. I would speculate that The other upstate Democratic incumbents, people like Joe Morelli, Paul Tonko, and Brian Higgins, they have deep ties to the legislature because they served in the assembly. They were assembly leaders, whereas Sean Patrick Maloney was a spitzer guy in Albany. And there are still some skeptics of his in Albany. Uh, So it's, it's funny how these fights play out in state capitals. The calculations that are made there are a bit different from what national strategists might prefer.
1: Let's stay in the neighborhood, uh, Pennsylvania, just to the west. Another fierce situation there. Are we expecting the state Supreme Court to fulfill its destiny, as you say, death taxes and litigation? Are we going to see them intervening in the redistricting efforts there?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, there are four major unknowns left in redistricting, and I'm sure we'll go through through some of them. Pennsylvania, Florida, what happens to the lawsuits involving Ohio and North Carolina, and then the racial gerrymandering lawsuits in Alabama and other parts of the Deep South. But first of all, Pennsylvania. So this is really fascinating because The state Supreme Court has a Democratic majority of five to two. And the state Supreme Court back in 2018 struck down the Republican gerrymander that was passed in 2011 and replaced it with its own plan drawn by a special master, which had the effect of moving the delegation from 13 to five Republican to nine nine, right down the middle. Now, Pennsylvania is losing a district this time. And we have always known there was going to be a stalemate between the Democratic governor, Tom Wolfe, and the Republican legislature, and that's exactly what happened. But the Commonwealth court, the lower court that took up the case, that was assigned the case, an ardently pro-Trump judge presides over that court and was supposed to pick the next map. Now, of course, Democrats you know, point out um, the Judge Patricia McAuliffe's website and point out that she she openly boasts about objecting to certify the 2020 results in Pennsylvania. They say she has no business determining the map for the next 10 years. They've badly wanted the state Supreme Court to intervene. Yesterday, the state Supreme Court issued a stay uh, as it considers taking up the case. I think the odds are the state Supreme Court eventually will approve a new map. But keep in mind, that may not lead to... A great Democratic outcome. Just because a Republican seat might get eliminated somewhere in the middle of rural Pennsylvania doesn't mean all the surrounding Democrats are safe because they'll need to expand further out into, into rural areas. And so, whether that's the Connor Lamb open seat, Matt Cartwright in the Scranton area, Susan Wilde in the Lehigh Valley, Chrissy Houlihan in Chester County, any of these Democrats could end up becoming more vulnerable.
0: Okay, Dave, so let's move on south. uh, As we talk about redistricting and the fight in Florida, who do you think has the upper hand between Governor DeSantis and the Florida Senate?
2: Yeah, well, you know, the timing of this is fascinating, because I had long assumed New York would be one of the last states to complete redistricting. Now that New York Democrats are out with their map, I really do think it increases the pressure on Florida Republicans to deliver a very aggressive gerrymander. And Ron DeSantis has been pushing that uh, as kind of a flex to the MAGA tent in the party. And then you've got the Florida Senate, which is led by kind of an institutionalist redistricting chair, Ray Rodriguez, and it's proposed a map that's barely a gerrymander at all. Ultimately, the arbiter here is going to be the Florida House of Representatives. And I think they're going to pursue a map that's somewhere in between what DeSantis and the Senate are proposing. So you could see, for example, Al Lawson's district in North Florida preserved uh, to avoid a a racial gerrymandering lawsuit. But you could see Stephanie Murphy's district or Charlie Crist's open seat converted into Trump districts. And so on net, that would mean a delegation that goes from 1611 Republican to maybe 19 to nine.
1: It is popularly believed and there is great data to support that in a midterm election, the new president is likely to suffer losses. The math seems to indicate that here. What's your take, Dave, as you look at the implications for all of this come November and majorities in the U.S. Congress?
2: So, the average midterm loss post-world War II for the President's party has been 26 House seats and two Senate seats. Obviously Democrats have virtually no margin for error in either chamber. and the bigger threat by far to Democrats House majority is disapproval of the president um, more so than redistricting And increasingly retirements uh, retirements I think have overtaken redistricting as a, a as a threat to Democrats majority And of course these are all interrelated right? you wouldn't be seeing so many retirements if biden's disapproval weren't so high you wouldn't be seeing so many retirements if redistricting weren't radically altering a number of districts so based on on what we saw in virginia and new jersey if you were to extrapolate those down ballot results into house races republicans would pick up more than 40 house seats now i don't think that's going to happen at least you know not not to not yet, because I do think voters treat federal races a bit differently than state ones. But could we see a Republican gain somewhere between 10 and 30 House seats? Yeah, I think so. And I'm keeping that purposefully broad right now, not only because we're pretty far out from the election, but because House polls in 2020 were off the mark. So, you know, we really won't have a sense of how these hard votes shape up until after the polls close.
1: Michaela, I uh, can't help but notice that President, former President Donald Trump, who was out with a rally last weekend, is getting more aggressive in his support of Republicans who are doing primary challenges to incumbents. Um, Dave, is, is this something that's really registering as an impactful part of your calculus right now? How do you see all of that?
2: Yeah, I think just as big a question as will Republicans take the majority is what will the Republican conference look like in 2023? And that's going to be determined by a lot of these primaries that play out in the first half of 2022. Now, all the attention is on the high profile Republicans like Liz Cheney, right? Uh, and, And other Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. The reality is that's a pretty small pool of races. I don't really think Liz Cheney has a path to renomination at this point. I don't think Tom Rice in South Carolina does either. Adam Kinzinger, John Katko, uh, and Anthony Gonzalez are all retiring. And so that leaves five pro-impeachment Republican members who uh, you know, are targets on Trump's retribution tour. Two, uh, three of those remaining five are in states with top two primaries. Dan Newhouse, Jamie Herrera-Butler, and David Valadeo. So those members have a path to re-election with Democratic support, even if Trump comes at them from the right. And then you've got Peter Meyer uh, in Michigan, who I think is really the test case. You know, Can he win renomination perhaps with as little as 40% of the primary vote there if, if his opposition is split? Uh, he's got a former HUD official, uh, um, John Gibbs, who has pretty weak ties to Grand Rapids, but has Trump's endorsement, a Ben Carson disciple, and then there's also the MAGA bride um, running in that primary, if you've seen pictures of uh, a bride who walked down the aisle literally wearing a MAGA flag. Uh, so we'll see what happens in that race, and then you've got um, Fred Upton, who still hasn't made up his mind. but I think the real determinative races for just how much of a right turn the Republican conference will take Mm -hmm. involve the Republican members who didn't vote for impeachment, but they either voted to certify the election, they voted for a January sixth commission, or they voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and have incurred Trump's wrath that way. So it's people like Rodney Davis in Illinois, uh, who will not, you know, make the front page of CNN or Fox News very often, but is a really key member uh, who uh, you know, ha- has a lot of policy sway. He is a legislator in the true sense of the word. David McKinley from West Virginia, Chris Smith from New Jersey, Mike Simpson in Idaho. Are these members able to survive their primaries?
1: You mentioned something that I don't fully appreciate the implications, but the racial congressional district makeups and the efforts there in the states that you talked about. How impactful is that? You help us understand a little bit about how different this is today than maybe in the past couple of cycles.
2: Yeah. You know, the Voting Rights Act is really a shifting landscape. And part of the reason it's so difficult to adjudicate is that in most of the country, racial voting patterns are so deeply polarized that it's almost impossible to separate race and partisanship they're inextricably linked in especially the deep south and so there were multiple decades when democratic politicians in the south supported really packed districts that created new opportunities for for black candidates to get elected and so the pattern across states like mississippi and alabama and louisiana and south carolina for many years has been one black majority seat, and then the rest of the districts in those states are white and pretty safely Republican. But it's interesting because now the the uh, thinking uh, on the Democratic side has really shifted. Democrats uh, have begun to realize that these maps uh, are disproportional, disproportionately representing uh Uh, whites in these states. And so they're pushing for multiple opportunity districts and unpacking some of these hyper-packed seats. And the federal court in Alabama that struck down the Republican map and essentially said, look, it's a 26% black state. There's only one out of seven districts that's majority black. It's possible to draw two. So we find that the map is likely discriminatory. You know that's a that's a sea change in judicial interpretation versus 10 years ago, and the fact that Trump appointed judges on that federal panel, uh, you know, laid the groundwork towards achieving something that Eric Holder's Justice Department couldn't achieve in 2011 is a remar- remarkable irony, and so. You know, it's it's easy to point at a map and say it's discriminatory, but where is the bright line standard? That's it's it's been a shifting standard over the years, and you know I, I think it's it's really ironic that for all of the conversation about how the Voting Rights Act has been gutted by Shelby v Holder and the uh, and the striking down of the preclearance clearance provision um, that that mandated federal um, a sign-off on changes to, to voting laws in the South. We're actually seeing a, a move towards um, more expansive voting opportunities for minorities in certain states. Now, it's not true everywhere. Uh, in Texas, for example, where 95% of the population growth in the last 10 years uh, was non-white, Republicans didn't draw a single additional minority opportunity seat. But I expect that more lawsuits will play out in the coming years, and the ultimate arbiter here will be the Supreme
1: Court. We did a show looking at the gubernatorial race in Virginia, but mostly about the polling that happened after the election, looking at employed voters and what really was at the heart of that election. What we think we've heard there is that even though education and critical race theory were issues that got a lot of attention in the media, inflation and the economy were really the pocketbook issues that were driving a lot of concern in the electorate. So not to that specific race, but broadly speaking, as you look at the candidates and the issues that they're running on and the debates that are starting to happen around these races, do you see some things that are really standing out as being the issues across the board in the 22 cycle?
2: Adam, I think it's really the sum total of the issues facing the country and, and a sense of feeling adrift in the electorate. The uncertainty on multiple fronts, uh, whether it's COVID restrictions, the protocol in schools, I think more than anything else, and the rising costs of goods, it's all playing into a general sense of unease and malaise that, by the way, is not guaranteed to persist through November. It's possible that in a few months, Americans could be feeling more optimistic about where things are headed with regard to COVID or the economy. I think once voters start feeling better about the pandemic... They may start feeling better about the economy. They're really inextricably linked. How certain am I that I can take a trip, a business trip, without flight interruptions? Or can I be confident that childcare will be reliable? So what voters, I think, expressed in Virginia was not so much confirmation of Yunkin's concern on critical race theory or echoing what Tucker Carlson was saying on Fox News. I think it was more An expression of frustration with the state of school closures and restrictions, mitigation steps in the last two years.
0: Dave Wasserman, you're just a terrific journalist, and we appreciate your time and the great work that comes from the whole team at the Cook Political Report. We look forward to having you back on the podcast soon.
2: Thanks a lot, Michaela.
0: And thanks to everyone downloading and sharing this podcast. Subscribe and meet us right back here on the Facts About PACs.